water. Sorry, I'm getting my baby to bring me up a water. Well, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, you've probably seen me before. My name is Austin Ludwig. I'm the worship pastor here at Riverstone Church. And uh, sometimes they let me talk. So that's, that's uh, my honor and my pleasure. So today we are gonna be talking. We're gonna be uh, jumping into God's word together. And I'm gonna be sharing some of what I just feel like the Lord has for us uh, just during this time. And, um, and, and Tom actually, he, he wasn't able to be here today. He's, he's um, away uh, for a funeral. Um, but he sends his regards, um, but you know, dad's not home, so that means things can get a little weird if we want to, right? <laughs> He's probably gonna see this on the live stream later and I'll, I'll hear about it. <laughs> um, so um, before we jump in, we believe that Holy Spirit is the best teacher. He's the one who's teaching us every single thing that we need to know. So what we're gonna do to start, just gonna uh, just be aware and, and make ourselves aware through praying that he is the teacher and he wants to teach us something today. So Holy Spirit, oh, we love you. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love uh, just discovering a new layer of who you are and what you do in our lives, Lord. And so today we just confess that you are the ultimate teacher, Father. We believe that you have seeds you want to deposit in us. So Father, we pray that the soil of our hearts and our mind would be fertile soil to receive the seed of what you have today, that it would take deep root within us, Father, and it wouldn't just be something that, 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 that grows within our logic and our mind, but even takes us into a place that goes beyond what we can understand. So we lean into you and we say, come and teach us something today. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. So what we're gonna talk about today is corporate culture. And we're gonna talk about the different facets of corporate culture um, and what we do here on Sundays. If you look across the world, we, we have a corporate culture in the Western church. There is what seems to be a format and a model and, and there's an overarching one. They don't all look the same, but uh, we have this format where we're coming in and we're uh, gathering Sunday, week in and week out. And Riverstone happens to be one of those churches that, that does that. But believe it or not, like we, we do that for a reason. We don't just do it because it's the cool new thing to do. We don't do it because that's, that's what churches do. You just come on Sunday, you sing a couple songs and do a teaching and then you're out of there, right? No, we are doing, uh, what we're doing today is having a conversation about the why behind the what it is that we're doing. Because it's important that we continue to have a conversation about the why behind the what. Because for generations to come, we wanna teach our intentions and the purposes to the things that we do corporately together, corporately in our culture. If we cease to have a conversation about the why, then oftentimes that's how we can fall into religious patterns. So we wanna talk about that. We wanna talk about corporate culture and the model and the format for what it is that we do and what makes that up. So what we take part in week in and week out is actually corporately called doxology. And doxology is what we define as a liturgical expression of praise to God, very simply put. And a liturgical expression of praise to God, the word liturgy means just the format or the way that we worship, the things that make up the model. So that's anything from the music to the song or even the lights, the production, the building that we're in to the teaching, to, to the ancient prayers, to, to the offering, even down to the announcements because it's all meant to be an expression that gives glory to Jesus. It's a form of doxology. 
And if you look in the, the Bible, the word doxa actually is one of the many words for praise in the Bible. And that's where we get our definition for doxology from. So the truth is, is that God on Sunday morning around 10 o'clock, he's not sitting up in heaven after a long week, just being like, man, I really wish someone would sing to me right now. He's not like, oh man, I really could use some affirmation. No, God is complete. He is whole. Before he created the heavens and the earth, before he created us, he was in perfect union with himself in what we call perichoresis, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before time, he was already complete and whole. And we worship him because he's worthy of it. We praise him and corporately gather because he's worthy of that. But we also do it for our benefit. I believe that worship is our soul abiding in agreement with who God says he is. And praise is the expression of that agreement. It's that liturgical expression. It's also defined as an external expression of the heart of worship that's taking place inside of us. Second Corinthians 1.20 says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. The promise of who he is, it says, yes. And we speak the amen communally together. We say, we agree. We come in through responding in agreement and praise through a corporate and communal amen to who God says he is. When we tell him who he is, we remember that this kingdom is built on the good news, on the gospel and a God who is good, that is his nature. It's a good news movement. And if you look in the Bible after studying all the words for praise, there's over 20 different words for praise in the Greek and Hebrew. And after studying all these words, what I've discovered is that every single one of those words is a verb. It is an action. It is an external expression. And the reason I tell you this is because I believe that good news requires an external response. If I was to tell you today that you won the lottery and I handed you a suitcase full of $10 million, now at first you might be in shock, but I bet you anything that eventually you would externally respond. You would be moved emotionally. You would be activated to do something to celebrate this good news. And this is what we do when we praise. In our current day, I believe that praise is so significant. It is so important because for so many of us, our daily rituals involve the consumption of bad news. It's flooding every single screen constantly, especially on the back end of a global pandemic and the continuation of social unrest. It's bad news, bad news, bad news. That's what it seems like. Not only that, but if, you know, just, just about 50 plus years ago, we weren't in the media age that we are in now, the age of information that, to the grandeur that it has grown into. We didn't know what was going on in Australia and South America and in Africa all in the same day. But now we see all the bad news at once that's happening all across the globe. And not only that, but the culture of this world seems to amplify it. See, the world's culture is bent towards bad news. That seems to be the case. But the corporate culture of the church of God is built on a good news movement. Oswald Chambers says this, the people of God in Isaiah's day had starved their imagination by looking at the face of idols. 
And Isaiah made them look up to the heavens. That is, he made them begin to use their imagination aright. They starved their imagination by looking on the face of idols, what they saw in the natural. But he said, wait a moment, look up to the heavens. You're using your imagination the wrong way. The culture of this world has persuaded us to turn our problems into idols. We begin to see our problems and then we're consumed by them and we give all of our attention to our problems that we see in the natural. We make idols out of them. Very, very simply put, do you, see, do you see more good news or do you see more bad news? This is just from what I see. I see a lot more bad news than good news. It seems that the culture of the world wants to have a conversation about the terrible things that are happening. But there is a good news movement that's happening. And I'm here to remind you today that we are a church and a culture built around the good news of God. So we've used our imagination incorrectly when we are consumed by this bad news that the world puts in front of us constantly. We continue to consider worst case scenarios, but we gather together corporately to praise him to externally express our response to the good news of who he is and to learn to use our imagination again in the right direction, to practice this week in and week out till it not just becomes our corporate culture on Sunday, but it becomes the DNA of everything we do in our life all seven days of the week. God is calling us to use our imagination in the right way because I believe what a key purpose to our corporate culture on Sunday mornings and in other gatherings that we come together for is that we're to come back to wonder. Spiritual maturity is not always our ability to understand, but oftentimes it's actually our capacity for wonder. And so what this means is that sometimes we trade in our right to understand, the understanding we somehow think that we're entitled to. See, the original sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve was that that they were convinced that the innocence and the childlike wonder that they were walking in wasn't enough. They were convinced that that was inadequate and that if they could just know a little bit more, if they could just have more understanding and wrap their head around, if they could just eat this fruit that would just open their eyes. And they believed a lie. That was the original sin. But this isn't to say that, that we're meant to posture ourselves as if ignorance is bliss or that we should continue to be naive. When we come in here and praise, what we're not doing is ignoring our problems or our unanswered questions, but we are ignoring the voice of fear that tells us that we can't obtain peace until we understand every piece of it. That's why they're called the, the shoes of peace when we're talking about the armor of God. It doesn't say the shoes of understanding because the shoes of peace is... It's gonna walk you into thresholds and places that sometimes understanding can't go. Sometimes to enter into a new space, God is saying, you've gotta leave your understanding right here because the shoes of peace are gonna take you into a new place. If you look throughout my, my Bible, something you'll see um, is when I read, a lot of times I'll stop and I'll write these question marks next to verses. And um, I do this because I don't, I don't know everything. And, and so I, I'm like, God, I want, I want to know more. I want to learn more. And so I put these question marks because I want to come back to that and rediscover maybe what he's saying. But what I don't do is I don't, I don't stop there. 
And I don't say, well, until you give me a download and explain everything right here where this question mark is, I'm not moving on. I don't have this standoff with God. No, I say I would love to learn more, but, but actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave what is my right to understand here and I'm gonna continue on. And I continue and I read more. And what I discover is that a couple of verses later, there's an invitation into a revelation and wonder, but I would have never had that if I just stopped here and said, I gotta understand and I'm not moving forward. We are meant to surrender some of our understanding so that we can partake in childlike wonder. Psalm 46.10 says to be still and to know that he is God. It doesn't say be still and understand that he's God. It says to know. And this tells us that there must be a difference between knowing and understanding, right? There is a difference between knowing and understanding. So many of you in this room, you've driven a car, you own a car, you use a car every day. And so many of you in this room aren't a mechanic. And you don't know and understand the inner workings of how your car works with fuel combustion and the electronics and all of that stuff that's happening with it. We don't completely understand every detail. But yet, every day, we get into our car with this, this trust, this knowing that our car is going to get us from point A to point B. We do it with our car, but how many of us do it with God? Be still and know that he's God. The difference between knowing and understanding. To know he's God doesn't always mean that we understand the why, the, the when, the what, the where, all of these other layers to it. Because if we knew everything, then that wouldn't require trust. And trust is an invitation that unlocks wonder. Wonder is actually defined as that which is inexplicable, that which is hard to explain. But at the same time, it is also defined as a recognition of beauty. And so I believe this is telling us that sometimes beautiful things, the awe, the beauty, and the wonder of God, sometimes beauty, beautiful things are, are inexplicable. In some ways, he is so unexplainable, isn't he? That's a part of the invitation for wonder. Would you rather call your experience with God understandable or would you rather call it wonderful? Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not, I'm not saying we're not meant to pursue understanding or wisdom See, these are things that, that Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and God the Father call us to all throughout scripture. But I'm here to say that, that just like it says in the word in, in 1 Corinthians, that, that the wisdom of this world is like foolishness to God. What the world calls wisdom and understanding is not the same as godly wisdom and understanding. What God calls godly wisdom is sometimes the counterintuitive thing. Sometimes when your life is spinning out of control, the, the world will tell you, you just got to get organized and you have to figure it out. But sometimes the wise thing in the kingdom is to just let go, fall back into the arms of the father and say, I trust you. You know, actually Colossians 2 defines complete understanding. It says, I wish you would know the, the full riches of complete understanding so that you would know the mystery of God. Complete understanding in the Bible is defined as knowing the mystery of God. And a mystery is not just that which is unknowable, but that which is endlessly knowable. He's without limitations. Over uh, the, the past year, I've been seeing these signs in people's yards more and more. And it's been interesting as we've been walking our dog in our yard, I've been noticing these signs and they say, we believe in science. And I'm not sure totally what, what these signs mean. I, Maybe it's like a trigger for people who believe the earth is flat. I don't, I don't really know. Like, but I'm walking by and I'm like, what is that? Like, well, I believe in science. You know, I believe science points to God. 
But when we look at science, science is about what can be measured, what can be calculated, what can be fully explained through the collection of data so that we can arrive somewhere at a conclusion. Science asserts to us that, that if we can collect enough data that it will help us arrive at this ultimate truth. But in the kingdom, truth is not something that you just arrive at. Truth is a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. He also says, I'm the life. And he says, I'm the way. And he also tells us he's the way because that tells us that it's not about arrival. It's not about arriving at something, but it's about an invitation to a process, to a journey, to the way, abiding and walking with the truth himself. The world will tell you to look at the data and to try and predict what's gonna happen next, what's going on in the, in the natural. What will naturally occur? What's the nature of this thing? But I'm here to tell you that, that God is superior to nature. That's why we call him supernatural. He's superior to what seems natural. An example of this is the story of Lazarus that many of you know. Jesus's friend, Lazarus, was, was very sick and they told him and he was journeying to him. And, and, and the thing was, Lazarus was sick, but by the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead for three days. He showed up and everybody's like, you're too late, man. You missed the deadline. You're too late. Many people say, you know, but Jesus showed up in the 11th hour. And I'm like, no, the 11th hour is like the last minute, right? The 11th hour is the last minute. He showed up in like the 13th, 14th hour. The 11th hour would have been when, when Lazarus was sick on his deathbed. But this is three days later. This is way beyond the last minute. This is, you're too late. But what does Jesus do in that moment? He says, no, no, no. You're looking at what you see in the natural, but I need you to fix your eyes on me. What you see in the natural is not the truth. I am the truth. And what does the truth, the personhood of truth do in that moment? He raises Lazarus from the dead. Another example of this is Mark uh, chapter eight, where Jesus is with the multitudes and thousands have gathered to hear him and to, to learn about who this man is. And there's, you know, it says that there was 4,000 people there, not including women and children. So maybe even double or triple that number. And the disciples are like, we got to send them home. They need to get something to eat. And Jesus looks at them and he says, will you give them something to eat? And then what do the disciples do? They, they look at their fish and their loaves and we're like, I mean, are you serious? Like, how are we gonna feed these people? You know, maybe they're gonna do it communion style like we do it. It's like a little itty bitty wafer. They're just gonna give everybody one little crumb and <laughs> call it communion. Anyways, but <laughs> what does Jesus do? He, he says in Mark, in, Mark, uh, in Mark 8 verse five, he says to them, he asks them this, he says, how many loaves do you have? And they say, we have seven loaves. Now, I don't think Jesus asked them this because it mattered. Like, what if they had three loaves? What if they had 10 loaves? What if they had 20 loaves? He didn't ask them this because it mattered. He says, y'all are so focused on what you see in the natural. You're so focused on what you can measure, what you can calculate, what the data says. You're focused on the bad news. What naturally should occur next is bad, bad, bad. But he's saying, look at the truth. The miracle worker's here, and what does he do? He multiplies it and feeds probably well over 10,000 people in that moment. 
He says, I am the truth. And the truth is that I am superior to nature. And this is what our corporate culture is about, to come worship, praise, externally respond and agree and say to God that we believe you are who you say you are. We believe you are superior to nature, to what we see in the natural. God's most defining characteristic should be that he is limitless. And it's an invitation for us to come back to childlike wonder. That's what our corporate experience is about. Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that this is an integral part of the kingdom, that, that you must become like a child if you're to enter the kingdom. I think a lot of people in this room, we need to start hanging out with kids more because everyone's so serious all the time, you know? We gotta be able to shake that thing off and maybe, maybe some of you should, would consider doing some stuff with RS kids because they, they get the kingdom. They say, it's simple. I just, I just trust my parents. That's what I do. I trust. I don't, I don't get up and I'm not, I don't think about every meal I'm gonna have. I don't, no, there's this trust, this childlike wonder. You know, there's a, there's a video that resurfaced that, was, that occurred in 2017 and it's, and it's this video from this guy and he's doing a BBC news interview on national television and the anchor's interviewing him and he's on his screen, he's in his own home office and they're both wearing suits and ties and it's this serious moment and, and, and they're having a real serious conversation. All of a sudden his kids kind of creep in the room behind him and he is noticing and he's trying to ignore it. But then what happens is the news anchor starts cracking up. He starts laughing. The dad's trying to ignore it, but he can't hold it in. And he's just, that smile finally comes. And all of a sudden what you see when the children enter the room is there's, there's this shift in the atmosphere. The tone of the conversation goes from, oh, we gotta be all serious and stoic into just this lightheartedness that happens. And this is what we're meant to, to bring when we bring in our childlike wonder, our childlike innocence. When innocence enters the room, it changes the atmosphere. God's people and and worship leaders, us who are leading up on this stage, when we corporately gather, we aren't called to just be a thermometer that reads the climate and the temperature around us saying, yep, it's bad out there. And then just leave it at that. No, we're meant not to be a thermometer. We're meant to be a thermostat that may read what's going on. But then we say, we have supernatural power within us through our childlike wonder, through our innocence to begin to shift the atmosphere, to begin to shift what's currently happening in the world around us. And that's not just me. That's not just what you would call church leaders. No, corporately together, we are a royal priesthood, not just the members who are, who are staff members at a church, but we are all a corporate, a corporate uh, royal priesthood. We don't, it's not about some individual's anointing up on a stage. It is actually a corporate anointing that we're all a part of. It's not about one individual. It actually, I mean, it is about one individual. There is an anointing if we say we're looking at the anointed one, Jesus, if we make him center of the room. But what I'm saying is that, that all of us have an opportunity to set the atmosphere, to set the climate. In Psalm 103, David says this, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, let all that's within me cry out and bless his holy name. And what we see David doing in this moment is he's actually leading his own soul in worship. He's saying, hey soul, I know it's rough out there, but it's time to to get yourself up, brush yourself off, and it's time to bless his holy name. Bless his whole name, let everything within me cry out. We're called to be our own worship leaders. But as we shift gears a little bit, I wanna, I wanna say that, um, I wanna talk a little bit about, 
about that in this corporate setting with worship leading and what I feel like our, our job is up here and kind of have a conversation about that because not, not a whole lot of people, I would say, in the macro vision of the church are, are kind of getting metacognitive. It's like, meta, to be metacognitive is to think about thinking. It's like, this, it's like, oh, that's hard to comprehend. But it's like, we're at church talking about church. So it's kind of this meta conversation, but I'll kind of invite us into that today as we're talking about worship. And so I wanna talk about worship leaders in the corporate culture. So why do we have worship leaders? Well, I would say first, first reason is I need a job. Uh, <laughs> worship dad, he needs to bring home the bacon. Um, right, baby, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, it is an honor and privilege to be at a church, to do this. Uh, I, I can't express to you how grateful I am. Just wanna say that. But no, that, that may be one reason, but I would say the, the key purpose, the reason, the why behind worship leaders existing is we are there to usher in the presence of the Lord. Now, when I say usher in the presence of the Lord, what I don't mean is we get up here and we say to everybody, come on guys, join me as we shout at the sky and summon God that's not what I mean, because that would assert that our performance can actualize his presence, that there's a formula for God to show up. But that's not why good parents show up. Good parents don't show up because the children are performing well. My, 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 uh, my buddy was posting on a story the other day, and he's got a really young son, and he was a proud dad sharing his son's first soccer game. He was like six or seven years old, and I'm watching this and these kids are running around kicking the ball like chickens with their heads cut off. It is chaotic. It's a mess. By, based off like elite soccer standards, they are not performing well. But dad is still there. Dad is present. You, if you're a parent in this room, you know, like you wish your kid, you wish all your kids were the super.